This podcast is dedicated to the dissemination of explicit language. But not today. Today we play it all nice-like with the naughty words. It's Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We're seeing long lines crossing the border, a mass exodus trying to get ahead of this coming storm. Not talking about Florida facing down Ian. I am talking about Russia facing the wrath of Vladimir Putin. Mass mobilization, meaning this fight of Putin's choosing becomes mandatory for Russian young men. Oh, and not so young men, up to 60. Michael Kaufman, one of the most trusted voices in this area, program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA, has read and heard what they're saying about the order. Announced was a partial mobilization, wartime measures, and they're looking for men with prior experience, up to 300,000 men. But Kaufman notes, having read the executive order, there is no framing as partial. He views it as a phased-in general mobilization, and these aren't reservists. They're taking anyone, and anyone and everyone is trying to flee. The Russian border crossing at Kazakhstan usually takes 30 minutes to pass. It was taking 12 hours to get past. The line of cars could be seen from space. More than 5,000 cars were waiting for hours at the border with Georgia, borders of Finland, borders of Norway, also crowded. The Moscow Times has reported in Russia, home of the Molotov cocktail, the 20 military recruitment offices have been torched and a recruitment officer was shot point blank in Irkutsk, which is in Siberia. He's critically wounded. Online searches for how to break an arm reportedly have spiked. Might I suggest posting something unflattering to Vladimir Putin under your own name. In that regard, 2,000 arrests have been made so far in Russia, reportedly. And there was an horrific school shooting like we have in America. In this one, 17 people were dead, including 11 children. The shooter killed himself. Now, the Russians point to or say that he was wearing Nazi regalia, which fits in exactly with their framing of who they want the enemy to be. But think about all the explanations that are given, plausible explanations, for why young men shoot up schools in America. Because they have no hope. They have no prospects. They are beset by desperation. So the mass mobilization might not be the cause of those feelings, but it certainly does contribute to all of those factors which underlie such violence. On the show today, that was dark. Let us go decidedly less so as we analyze the doofus dad in real life and in ads. But first, former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold and Peter Prindival, who's a constitutional scholar at Stanford, take us through a seemingly fantastical but very real effort to change the Constitution. And it could work. Because I don't know if you know this, but if three quarters of the states want a constitutional convention, they get one. And already two thirds of state houses are under Republican control. And conservative activists argue that some states, even those not currently under Republican control, have already cast binding votes for a convention. What would come of the convention? Well, that's one of the more troubling parts. It's all laid out in the new book, The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Russ Feingold and Peter Prindeville up next.
If you know me, you know I am not of the henny penny chicken little ilk. I do not catastrophize or worry about unbelievably remote occurrences. However, a new book brought to mind an event or an eventuality that I had discounted. I was barely paying attention to it. But this book, The Constitution in Jeopardy, puts in stark relief the stakes of a constitutional convention as called by Republicans, and I will say radical Republicans, not in the good sense of the uh, post-Civil War era, convening a constitution in a way that might be unconstitutional. Russ Feingold, former U.S. Senator and President of the American Constitution Society, is one author, Peter Prindeville, who is a non-resident fellow at the Stanford Constitution Law Center, is another author. And the name of the book, again, The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Gentlemen, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. When did you first start hearing the rumors of this happening and what you think about it originally? Well, you know, I started thinking about it and hearing about it uh, when I started teaching after I was in the Senate, 2011, 2012. And you know, frankly, I wasn't really aware of it either. I was aware of a lot of other things, and uh, I knew some of the history of previous attempts, but certainly not a, a current attempt. But uh, then it became more and more evident as I created a course about Article 5 of the Constitution, which is the amending mechanism. And I ended up having this really smart student in the class who uh, is Mr. Prinderville, and then he became my teaching assistant. And we did the deep dive, and we realized that there needed to be a book telling people about this movement, which by the way, it's legal. It, it is not unconstitutional. However, it is very questionable the way they're going about it. And it could be very damaging to our system of government and may destroy our constitution. So um, it was a gradual realization that this is very serious and that there really needed to be a book laying this out for people. And so Peter, you could lay out for us, what is it? That, that's the first of the five W's. What is it? What are they talking about? Sure. So Article 5 of the Constitution uh, is the, provides the process by which the Constitution can be changed. It's the constitutional amendment mechanism. Um, amendments have to be both proposed and ratified. And there's two ways to propose amendments. The first is through Congress, and this is the process we've always used throughout history. If two-thirds of both houses of Congress vote to propose an amendment, it's then sent to the people, the states, for ratification. But there's actually a second process, a second proposal mechanism in Article 5, which we've never used, and that is upon the applications of two-thirds of the states through their state legislatures, a convention is called. And this convention can also propose amendments. And as we lay out on the book, we don't really know what would happen at this convention. And there are theories being put forward by uh, activists on the right that are very troubling. And so we're worried about this process. Let's say there, this comes to pass. There is a constitutional convention. The people, the states calling the convention have an agenda. What amendments do you think are likely to come out, judging by maybe what they've said they would like for the result to be? Well, we don't have to guess. Um, they can do anything, as Peter and I have pointed out. They can ban abortion. They can ban same-sex marriage. But you know, maybe they would do that. But what we're pretty sure they'll do is they did it. At this conference, at, at this convention, they had a mock convention in Williamsburg in 2016, and they carefully laid out uh, what what 
one of our chapters says, what Trump and the Tea Party couldn't do. So what did they vote for? They voted by a majority of the states, state delegation. They voted to severely constrict the powers of the federal government so that acting on things like COVID would probably be essentially impossible. They voted to constrict and, and limit the ability of regulatory agencies to do their work. So they would gut things like the Environmental Protection Agency and its ability to deal with climate change. One of the amendments that passed would eliminate this income tax. And, you know, people in this country used Article 5 to overturn a Supreme Court decision that wouldn't allow the income tax. They would get rid of it. And people might say, well, that sounds good, but how are you going to have a, a military to protect this country? And the one that they voted for that was probably their favorite is they create a mechanism. They want to put it in the Constitution that if 30 of the states vote to overturn any act of Congress or any regulation, they can do it. So they are trying to hamstring this country's ability to uh, govern itself and to bring together an enormously diverse population. So we don't have to guess. This is These are among the things they want to do. Right. And in terms of a state house approving it, does it need, what are the parameters? What's laid out? A majority vote of the state house? Uh, Two thirds a majority of both state houses? How do they decide what a state legislature calling for it constitutes? I am a was a state senator for 10 years in Wisconsin, and the normal rule would be there could be other ones, simply a simple majority of both houses. And the interesting thing about this is, although some states may allow the governor to be involved in this, he or she is not really involved. It's really just a majority vote, and that's exactly what they've done here in Wisconsin. We have a Democrat governor here, but our state legislature, which is totally uh, gerrymandered, just goes ahead and votes for every one of these things, regardless of, of, uh, of what the majority view might be. So how many states right now already have on the books the yes vote for this constitutional convention? Well, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, there are differing movements uh, that are proposing these uh, applications, and they claim to have different aims for a, con- a convention. So state legislatures are, are passing, uh, you know, different varieties of these applications. Now, we would argue that you need to think of them in, in, the, in their limiting sense. You know, some, some of these uh, differing varieties have passed 19 or 20. Others are, are closer to the 34. Um, but there are other theories that you can actually just kind of add them all together or mix and match in certain ways. And so uh, in just a, few, a, a, a month or so ago in Congress, uh, a Republican congressman introduced a resolution claiming that the threshold had been satisfied and that we already are at the 34 threshold and that Congress needs to issue a call. A lawsuit has been introduced in the Southern District of Texas claiming, making the same claim and arguing that a judge should order Congress to issue the call. And so although there are many questions about how one actually does in the book, what we call constitutional mathematics, how you actually count all this stuff, uh, which is pretty complicated and it gets vexing quickly, uh, the political argument is already being made. And, And we argue in the book that at the end of the day, it's really a political action of Congress. And uh, Congress, if they believe that the threshold has been satisfied, could issue the call. So what they might do is, you know, let's say the Republicans take over the House. This guy reintroduces resolution. They could say, okay, there's there's 19 of this convention of the states uh, applications that include a number of things. There's four term limit ones over here. There's 10 balanced budget ones over here. And, you know, they can put them together. And frankly, one of the things that we really worry about in our book 
is there aren't any clear rules at all. There are no rules about how this should be counted. And we believe it's highly unlikely the Supreme Court would get involved and say, you know, you can't do this. So it may be that Congress can just call it and it happens. Well, so you're saying that there are rules, there are calls in state legislatures for a specific amendment, say balanced budget. And the theory of the case put before this Texas judge or introduced in Congress is that is a call for a constitutional convention. Any state that has called for an amendment is really calling for a constitutional amendment or should be considered under our theory of the case. That's the only way they can do it. The only thing they can do to get an amendment by the states is call, ask for a convention. Only Congress can propose amendments directly. And it's important to, to note, Mike, and, and perhaps we'll discuss this a bit later, but even though these applications from state legislatures claim that they only want a convention to address a certain topic, you know, term limits or a balanced budget amendment, or, you know, in the convention of states, their draft text, it's incredibly broad. It's any amendment that would reduce the power of the federal government, which I mean, I would challenge you to think of an amendment that wouldn't meet that, <laughs> uh, that, that amendment. But once the convention is, uh, is convened, state legislatures in Congress have no legal power to, to limit the convention. And so you have to see all of these applications, although they might speak in a different tone or, or express different goals, you have to see them all as a monolithic whole. Because once the convention is convened, there's no way to limit it. There have been calls for from progressives, from people who are elected Democrats right now to not just reform the Constitution, but maybe have a constitutional convention. So might this, it does seem far-fetched, but possible, might a constitutional convention, is there a possibility that it could usher in, you know, reforms about the flaws of the Constitution, like the Electoral College or so many of the other voting procedures that have just come to light in recent years? Well, we, we would love to see that happen. We believe that, that there's a desperate need for constitutional change in this country. Our constitution is the hardest constitution in the world to amend. It's kind of a misfire by our founders of making it so difficult. Maybe they didn't foresee that we would have 50 states and we would become so partisan. You know, they didn't even think there should be political parties. Or to cut them some slack. I mean, it was the first time since Athens they were trying this project. It's not going to be perfect the first time out. First time ever to ever to, to really have an amending mechanism. So, so the, the problem is, is that we have a, uh, a system here that, that is sort of, we like to say, stagnated or ossified. It can't be fixed for some of the things you're saying because it's so hard. You know, it wasn't always that way. In, in the um, 1960s, Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana actually got through the House by a huge margin, the elimination of the Electoral College. Came back to the Senate and couldn't quite get it. But in other words, it used to be things weren't so polarized. So one of the major themes in the book is that, yes, you need these changes. But if you do the changes under this current system, based on a state-by-state -state basis, which is what these uh, right-wing folks are insistent upon, that's not the result you're going to get. It's more than far-fetched. There's no way that with these uh, malapportioned, gerrymandered state legislatures, you would get delegates who would do the things that, that I think the majority of the people in this state would like to see happen. Which, you mentioned the right wing, which big establishment or even fringe, but maybe powerful right wing organizations are actively backing this? 
the household names, you might say, you know, the American Legislative Exchange Council has been very involved. This, this, yeah, Alec, this group that kind of um, coordinates across Republican state houses, you know, what's the, the next best uh, Republican policy priority. But also these movements uh, to call a convention are, are very well funded by kind of establishment uh, far right funding groups. The Koch brothers, for example, the Mercer family, the uh, and and it also has attracted this this um, group of household names on the right. Uh, Rick Santorum, for example, um, just came on as an advisor for the Convention of States project, which is run by Mark Meckler, uh, the founder of the Tea Party Patriots, and so uh, and and leading politicians are also supporting it. Um, Governor Scott Walker, for example, has endorsed it. Um, what about the Federalist Society? I know they're mostly about judges. Have they dipped a toe in? Not that I know of. So as I diagnose it and as I read the book, there's a lot to be concerned about. And I don't want to just uh, judge it on uh, the basis of can it happen or can't it happen? I think of it something like um, the possibility of an earthquake or the possibility of a natural disaster. Very low probability, but you still have to, or pretty low probability, but you still, it behooves you to know about it and prepare for it. So, So that's one. But I want to be clear about just how fringe or remote uh, possibility this is and who's actually behind it. To me, it seems like it is people like Rick Santorum who right now have nothing limiting them from just kind of being as extreme as possible and maybe, you know, getting paid for having that stance. There are a lot of um, and policy initiatives, let's call them, among the far right, like abolishing the income tax, which probably aren't going to go anywhere. So why is this different from, you know, an, uh, another dream of the fever swamps of the right? See, I see Peter opening the book because I think he's going to get the list of the number of, and you can fill in some of the names, but the people that have endorsed this include, you know, Jeb Bush endorsed it during the during the presidential primary in 2016. I think is DeSantis on that list? He is. The other thing to say, and, and I, I'm I'm trying to get the exact number for your listeners, but it's in the book. The just the sheer number of applications that have been submitted to Congress since the Obama during and since the Obama presidency. It's remarkable. And so although we might say, oh well, it's attracted these people who are on the fringe and we and you know thus it can be ignored. Look at the look at the actual legal activity. Look at the legal instruments that are being passed through the constitutional mechanisms, and that's where the danger lies. And so, when you marry fringe elements with a legitimate constitutional process about which we know very little, what happens is you have the 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 you know the the recipe for a true constitutional crisis. Because if this convening is called, again, there's been uh, resolutions introduced in Congress to do it and attempts to get a court to do it. We don't know how it would work. There are theories being drafted on the right that we would argue have next to, to little legal or constitutional basis, yet they've been repeated time and time again, uh, and people believe them to be true. And there's no way to really re- to settle these questions. The courts might not get involved. And it would yield a true constitutional crisis where differing factions of the country believe in the legitimacy of the convention 
and others dispute it on what we would say are very solid legal grounds. And so that's the real fear. And I think this is a really important question you've asked, Mike, because, you know, how does this become mainstream? All right, let me draw a picture. Do you remember a few years ago when the Trump and the 16 candidates were all up there and they were asked, you know, do you guys for waterboarding? You bet. Every single one. Oh, yeah. Waterboarding. Give me some waterboarding. Fast forward to 2024. You got that whole group there. Question. Do you support a constitutional convention? I'll bet you anything. Every single one of them will say yes, because it, it is a litmus test. It will be a litmus test uh, on the right. And I predict that that's how it becomes much more mainstream. It already is. It's, it's the Republican Party of Texas, their state platform, in addition to a lot of other fringe ideas, for example, that the state government should be looking more intently at secession. They also included this in the party platform that a convention should be called. And so it's all these breadcrumbs that we're seeing. The name of the book is The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Authors Russ Feingold and Peter Prindeville. Gentlemen, thank you so much. It was fun, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having us. And now the spiel. Hey, sweetie, I'm not seeing the life jackets. Well, you should, you packed them. No, you packed them. I saw this commercial while watching an NFL game. Well, it was the Jets, but at least one of the teams playing was in the NFL. So in the commercial, a couple is on a camping trip and whoops. No, you packed them. You said, I won't forget to pack the life jackets. I won't forget to pack the life jacket. I'm sorry, I I have to challenge that. He has to challenge that. And here comes the conceit of the commercial, which is clever. He produces a red challenge flag. If you're unfamiliar with this, it's a way in the NFL for coaches to trigger an instant replay review. Denver is challenging the ruling on the field of defensive pass interference. They throw a red flag on the field and the referees are compelled to watch the instant replay of what actually happened to determine right and wrong. And that's what occurs in this commercial for car insurance. Well, you do have one left, so... This What Really Happened replay is brought to you by Progressive. One thing no one would challenge, protecting your home and auto with Progressive. The couple watches a replay, and soon we gauge their reaction. Now, before the big reveal of who was right, I'm going to ask you, guess. Guess who do you think winds up screwing up the life jackets thing? Do you think the woman was the doofus who didn't remember but insisted she did? In the history of the world, this must have happened sometime. In the history of commercials, however, well, a quick primer. Is that Ricky Fisher in your fave five? Three-time first grader Ricky Fisher? Two times, Mom. Here's a T-Mobile commercial from about 10 years ago. Oh, honey, doesn't that kid eat pencils? A mom is giving advice to a daughter. Honey, you need to associate with smart guys. Sort of like how you have Dad and Uncle Joe in your five. That's exactly right. Only over a mom's shoulder, we see Dad and Uncle Joe engaged in tomfoolery aboard a riding tractor that they're performing jumps with. Why? Because Dad is dumb. Got it. And here, wife is practical, hubby is an ass. Oh, guess who it is? It's your butt. Hey, butt. Oh, okay, I'll tell him. Your butt says to get rid of that phone you're sitting on and got one of these. It's a Blackberry that flips closed. So no more butt dialing. 
Yay! Yay! Aw, see how she masks her annoyance with the good cheer one would have while encouraging a three-year-old who semi-correctly used the potty? You can't just throw this at me! Well, Dad's in the doghouse again. In the next one, the mom's sensible, Dad's a doof, and the son calls play-by-play. He just showed up with his client unannounced. Not even a text. Luckily, you've got Kraft Homestyle mac and cheese in the pantry, so Mom can save the day. Well, isn't this nice? A client who is placated by warmed-up mac and cheese. Sounds like a million-dollar account. Dad really screwed this up. Now, I got all of these at an abandoned website called stupidmancommercials.blogspot.com. The guy behind the site seemed a bit more miffed about the trope than I am. It's a stereotype for a reason. I mean, commercials have 30 seconds to tell a story and sell a product. Plus, as actors, the men in the commercials did get to play some comedy, which is good for their acting reel, whereas the put-upon women just had to set themselves up for supporting roles that don't pass the Bechtel test. Also, I should note that history does not smile upon anyone, man or woman, who turned to the Blackberry as the solution to the butt dial. But knowing that the doofus dad, the ham-fisted husband, the moron man is such a staple, let's go back to our progressive insurance commercial. There, a man and a woman were disagreeing about who promised to pack the life jackets. Was it the woman or the man? Keeping in mind that the man in the commercial, he did seem pretty sure of himself. Uh, If he was wrong, it would really set himself up with an extra dollop of humiliation. I mean, if he was the one who forgot to pack the life jackets. So as with the couple depicted in the commercial, let's go to the videotape. You know, my favorite part was when you said, obviously, I won't forget to bring the life jackets. It turned out to be the man demonstrating less competence. Okay, I do not think that this trope is a great crime or a stereotype that perpetuates harm. I don't think the commercial needs to do better. I swear. But it does rob, the fact that we knew it was going to be the guy, does rob the commercial of a little bit of tension. But you know, what can you do? I will tell you what you can do. You ready? It's 2022. Make it two guys. Have two guys be the couple and have the debate play out between them. This preserves all the comedy of a challenge flag on a camping trip. That, that scenario, that golden scenario stays. It injects a frisson of the unknown and breaks out of a tired trope. I know it's an NFL commercial or a Jets versus an NFL team commercial, but guess what? That team was the Bengals, and according to Outsports.com, Cincinnati Bengal fans are the most LGBTQ plus supportive, a new study finds. The NFL airs supportive ads during Pride Month. I have seen same-sex couples in ads on NFL games. I have seen same-sex couples at NFL games. Just make the camping couple two men. Double the moron possibilities. And what brand extension that would truly be progressive. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced in an assistant producer capacity by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. The CEO of Peachfish Productions once thought the Q train when pulling into 51st Street had doors that open on the left side, but it was actually doors that open on the right side. Her name is Michelle Pesca. I will not tell you what other Peachfish Productions employee that conversation occurred with. So, somewhat of a touchstone in a corporate lore. Now that's progressive. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening. 